I think it's underestimated how many players don't have a lot of confidence in their overhead, especially when it's really high and there's a ton of time to wait for it. So yeah, I would say if you're in a really tough spot, feeding them a high overhead is maybe better than trying to hit a perfect drop. Because last thing, if you try to hit a perfect drop when you're on the run and you're in a tough spot, not only is that borderline impossible to do consistently, if you miss it a little high, you're in the no-go zone where they have it at their shoulder. And most people are more effective in putting the ball away when it's at their shoulder height or a little higher than it is if it's two feet above their head. Okay, so we're back with another solo podcast. Um, Same as always, this isn't really about me. I'm just going to answer questions that were given to me in the comments. Um, So again, feel free to give me questions that are in the comments. Um, Anything you want to know, I will try to answer it. I'm basically picking out my favorite ones or the ones that apply to the most people, and I'm answering them on here. So the first question is, when can you lob? other than at the no volley zone. So I'd assume that this means defensive lobs, whether maybe you were in transition, you hit a drop a little too high, you're in a really tough spot, and you wanna just reset the point and throw a lob up. And I think that that's actually a decent play. Um, You see the pros, they hit a lot of those, um, actually defensive lobs when they're in a really tough spot. And this is entirely player dependent. So the first thing to know here is that the variance in the ability of players to hit overheads is wild at any level. If you look at the best pros, there are certain players like Thomas Wilson, Tyler Loon, me, right, maybe, that can just put the overhead away that have, you know, if you give that guy an overhead, good luck, it's over. And then there are players who are maybe even better than those players. I won't name any names, call out any pros, but there are some pros that didn't have tennis backgrounds that have overheads that are worse than certain three fives. And it goes the same, you know, down to the 4-0 level, the 4-5 level. I've taught clinics to 4-0s that have better overheads than half of the Premier League. It's just, it's random, and it's a lot of it is tennis background-based. But I think that that's important to know because it's important to know who your opponents are because if you're lobbing players that have maybe no tennis background, you're probably going to be safe, and there's also a good chance that they miss that overhead. So, yes, I would say that defensive lobs are a play that you can use Um, I think the most important thing about defensive lobs is that you have to give yourself a lot of margin for error. So offensive lobs have to be pretty precise. You want them to be maybe two feet within the baseline and probably going cross court because there's more space cross court than there is down the line. So there's more air time for that ball to travel and maybe, you know, two feet from the sideline also, because the wider it is, the better it is. And the deeper it is, the better it is. So you want to be willing to take on that additional risk because it will reward you with a better shot if you execute it properly. A defensive lob is not like that. You're not trying to hit it precise. Maybe two feet from the baseline is not your target. You want to aim basically in the middle of the court and you want it to be high. The higher the defensive lob, the better it is. So make sure you remember that. The higher the defensive lob, the better it is. And here's why. If you can get it higher, and I'm sure if you guys go out there and and try this out, you'll notice that it's probably the case with you too. The higher that you're hitting an overhead from, the harder that it actually is to put it away. And I would know because I could put the overhead away most of the time, but if it's really high, it's tough because you can't spike the ball and make it bounce out of the facility like you can with a tennis ball or with other balls. The pickleball doesn't bounce that high. You can't spike it. If you want to put it away, you have to either go straight through the person which means that it's going to bounce 
two feet from the baseline and you're hitting it as hard as you can, or you angle it off the court. Those are the two ways to put an overhead away. So for me, I feel significantly more lethal, able to end almost 100% of the points if the ball is here, actually, maybe a foot above my shoulder, because I can create an angle that's so linear, it's almost impossible to get back because I'm hitting it as hard as I possibly can. It's landing two feet from the baseline. And when it bounces, it's going up maybe just a little. It's almost skidding. And that's the best way to put the overhead away. If it's higher, it's a lot more difficult. So I think you have to look for height and you have to look for margin for error. So if you can make it bounce maybe five feet inside the baseline, you don't have to really give yourself a lot of extra risk hitting it close to the baseline because there's not as much gain there as there is risk. Because again, it's a very high lob. The wind can take it. There's a lot of different things that can happen to that ball. And you want to aim in the middle, I would say. There's no need to take any risk going to the sidelines. If the wind's going to blow it, you might miss it. You want to give yourself a lot of margin for error and hit it as high as you can. If that happens, you're probably going to be in a good spot, especially against a lot of four O's and four or fives that have no tennis background. Um, just make sure you don't miss the lob. Make them hit the overhead because, again, there is a good chance that they miss that ball. I think people don't really... I think it's underestimated how many players don't have a lot of confidence in their overhead, especially when it's really high and there's a ton of time to wait for it. So, yeah, I would say if you're in a really tough spot, hitting a high overhead is better than trying to maybe hit a, or sorry, feeding them a high overhead is maybe better than trying to hit a perfect drop. Because last thing, if you try to hit a perfect drop when you're on the run and you're in a tough spot, not only is that borderline impossible to do consistently, if you miss it a little high, you're in the no-go zone where they have it at their shoulder. And most people are more effective in putting the ball away when it's at their shoulder height or a little higher than it is if it's two feet above their head. If you hit a lob a little bit too high, you make the mistake of maybe hitting it a little too low. They're still probably not going to be able to get it at shoulder height. They're still going to have to reach up and try to spike it. And that presents a challenging way to put the ball away. So to summarize, defensive lobs are effective as long as you aim high and you give yourself a lot of margin. And I think it's, it is a valuable play as long as you know who your opponent is. So if I'm playing Thomas Wilson, I'm not going to be feeding him lobs. If I'm playing other players, I will, because overhead ability varies wildly at any level. I think it's the, the shot with the most variance in the sport, actually. If you go to you know the four O's, the four fives, five O's, the digging gets a little better gradually. The drops get a little better gradually. Everybody has relative strengths based on their level. So a relative strength of mine based on my level would probably be maybe my hands. A relative weakness might be my transition, right? But my transition is still better than uh, 5-0. But I think there are players who, when it comes to the overhead, it varies almost, it's just impossible to even predict. If there's no tennis background there, you can't say that a borderline pro pickleball player that didn't play tennis is still going to have a 5-0 level overhead. He might have a 3-5 level overhead but there's almost no other shot where that type of variance exists. So know your opponent. Next question. Um, where to return in doubles? So this is also very player dependent, um, but it's tough to say because a lot of the times as you go down a level, both players are pretty similar in transition in, in terms of hitting thirds. So you can't really expect to get a lot of freebies from one player and then no freebies from another player at the pro level most of us know exactly where we're going to return every time because those little minute differences we're very aware of we've watched everyone on youtube and we know exactly 
what's going on and who's better at crashing and whatever it is. But if you're not sure, you don't know the team, I would start returning to the left side player uh, as opposed to the right side player because if the left side player looks like he's capable of crashing, if it looks like it's an athletic guy, um, I would probably look to keep him back first because it's infinitely easier to crash from the left than it is from the right. There are not many players who are comfortable crashing with a backhand from the right side of the court. It's just not common outside of maybe Anna Lee. And I think that that's very important in terms of just giving yourself no additional risk of there being a crashed fourth of yours. You can be more aggressive on fourths if there's no crash threat. And I think it's um, ultimately it's something you have to be aware of when it comes to there are players that are getting more athletic that are crashing from the left at almost any level. Actually, I've seen four O's crash with a lot of success and it's just, it's a pretty intuitive, intuitive shot, especially coming from tennis. Um, there are some shots that are not intuitive shots, not natural, like fifths coming from tennis or sevens or thirds even, but crashing is just a poach in tennis. There's a lot of players that can do it. So usually I'll look to return to the left side player if I'm not sure. Um, but again, you want to know your opponents, uh, the ability, you know, hitting third shot drops is something that varies at any level. Some players are better at it. Some players are worse at it. So I would try to be cognizant of that, but it's, it's a, an equation, right? If both players are the same level at hitting thirds, then you want to return to the player who is better at crashing. Uh, so crashing comes into play. Some of us feel more comfortable returning cross court than down the line. I feel more comfortable for whatever reason returning to the left side of the court than to the right. A lot of us have these little personal ticks and things that are you know, varying between us. So it kind of comes down to a lot of different things. I think those are the main ones, but you never want to miss a return wide. That's the main thing because if you give yourself maybe two feet of margin for error because you're aiming two feet from the sideline, and then you miss it wide, that's just a mistake on your part because there's really no gain from hitting a return two feet wider than it is hitting it in the middle. Um, I think I'd argue actually it's better to hit it into the middle if you do want the left side to play player to take it because then there's a little bit of confusion that presents itself. So if you hit it to maybe right on the center line and then you miss that by four feet wide, one direction or the other, it's still in. So if you make those mistakes, those minor mistakes on your return, you're going to be okay as long as you aim for big targets. So I want to swing big on my returns. I want to hit them pretty hard. Um, and I don't mean taking a big backswing. I mean taking a pretty nice cut on the ball, trying to get some acceleration and hitting them pretty hard as I move in. And what I tell myself when I'm hitting returns is big returns to big targets. So if you aim for a big target, you can, you're at the liberty to be a little more aggressive because you can miss that spot and then still make it in the court. I'm almost never gonna hit a return close to as hard as I can aiming an inch from the baseline because if I miss it a little long, it's out. I'm gonna aim usually in the middle, maybe three to four feet from the baseline. So I'm not gonna miss it wide. And if I do miss it long, it's just a wild mistake of mine. I must've miss it, miss it the ball and I'm never gonna miss it in the net. Because again, so the net is 34 inches high and how much space do we have above the net? Infinite space. And I'm not saying we're gonna use all that space, but there's a lot more than 34 inches above the net than there is you know, from the net to the ground. So there's, what I'm saying is there's more of this world that is not net than is net. And for that reason, you should never miss a return in the net because a higher return in a lot of cases is actually better anyway. 
So giving yourself risk by trying to aim low over the net, hitting a linear aggressive return is not worth it at all. I'm pretty sure we already know that. So I'm not going to talk too much about that. Let's see. Next question. How do you counter with two hands wide? So this is a good question. Whew. Give myself a second here. It's not easy to talk to myself the entire time. Usually I get to kind of pretend to listen to Adam for like a minute while I'm thinking about food. This is just straight to the point intense. Like my brain sometimes hurts at the end of these actually. Um, how do you counter with two hands wide and one hand at the chest? So I saw this comment. Um, this is a great question because I think the comment was wondering, how do you hold your ready position if you're ready to counter with two hands wide but one hand at the chest? And the thing there is you don't really want to have two hands on the paddle for your ready position ever. I think for me, I always have one hand on the paddle at the ready position. And then I switch to two as quickly as I can if I see that it's coming wide. And sometimes I don't have time to do so, but most of the time I do. The reason that I start with one and then switch to two when it's wide is because if I'm on the left and it's going down the line, that ball isn't going to be hit that hard. It's impossible to hit a speed up from the sideline on the right, down the line, over the left side player's left shoulder, and make it and hit it hard. There's a lot less court going straight down the line due to the geometry of the court, obviously, and the net's higher. If you're going right on that sideline, the net's at about 35 and a half inches high. You can't hit that ball that hard. You can hit a cross court speed up a lot harder. You can hit a cross body speed up harder. So for me, those down the line attacks, I'm not worried about the speed. I'm confident that I can be ready with one and anything that's coming at my body, they can hit that one a lot harder because they also know that it's a lot harder to leave a shot that's coming right at your body than it is coming wide. So they have to make that. I know that they have to make that shot that's coming right down the line. It's not gonna come that hard. So I'm gonna be ready with one at my chest. If it goes to the forehand, I'll flip forehand. If it goes here, I'll go right rear with one hand. And then if it's wide, I have time to put two hands on it and counter it. If you don't think you have time to start with one hand and then switch to two when it's going down the line, you're either trying to hit balls that are going out or you don't really know how much time you have because you have more time than you think in that situation. Because for me, I know when I'm speeding up from the right and I go at the right shoulder or at the chest of the left side player in front of me, I can be pretty liberal with how hard I hit that ball. It's not easy to leave that ball um, left side players are usually more aggressive. They're trying to jam the middle with their forehand. So this is another one. If you're on the right and you have a ball wide, you can speed it up pretty hard at that left side player in front of you as long as you're aiming at their chest or the right side of their body, assuming that they're a righty playing the left. It's tough to leave that one. But if you go down the line with that ball, you try to sneak it by them, maybe get them to leave it, whatever it might be, you have to make that ball because it's very easy to leave that one. I'm sure you've all been in the situation. You get hit by a ball and you know that it was going out. Rarely are you going to be reaching for a ball, just barely touching it, and it was far from you, and then you realize, oh, it was going 10 feet out. That one's usually easier to leave. It's usually past you before you can even recognize that it was going out. So those are the main things there. To summarize on this, if you really want to counter with one hand at your chest and two hands wide, you have to be ready with one hand. I'm always ready with one hand. I'm never ready with two because countering at your chest with two hands is very tough and I wouldn't recommend it. Not even I can really do it. Sometimes I'll do it if I'm on defense, but mostly one hand here and you do have time to switch to two. It's not the other way around. 
you're not starting with two and then switching to one when it gets at your body and then moving here, that doesn't make sense because the ones at your chest are coming a lot faster than the ones that are going down the line wide. Okay, last question, guys. This is, this is again, I'm doing this in the morning. Um, it's, it's harder in the morning than at night, I think. Uh, we'll see. What mental strategies did you use to improve so quickly? This is the last question. Um, this is a good question because I use a lot of mental strategies to improve quickly. I was always really big on discipline and making sure my mind was in the right place before every practice. So the first thing I did was I, before every practice, I would have in my notes a bunch of initiatives for that practice or for that rec game. I always believed in practicing with a purpose, having intention for my practices. And I would say, you know, for example, uh, for this practice, I'm going to focus on topspin roll drops and the backhand cross-court dink and the backhand flick out of the air. Those are the main things. But before games, before rec games, I wouldn't really focus on any of the minute details, the technical stuff, because I wanted to condition myself before every rec game to try to win. I always wanted to condition myself. Every time I'm playing points, I'm trying my best to win that game. I'm not thinking about technique. I'm not thinking about any sort of anything other than just strategy and trying to win every single rec game. And you can ask the people I play rec with, I sometimes get mad if I lose rec games or very competitive in rec, because I think that that's very valuable. How you play rec is how you're probably going to play tournaments. It's not easy to mess around in rec and do silly stuff and go to the tournament and just be a rock of discipline. You've really got to condition yourself to play the right way and you have to train the right way to play the right way. You can't just practice and, and mess around and then go to a tournament and expect not to miss a ball. Doesn't really make sense. So for me, before every rec game, in my notes, I would just say, be aggressive, move my feet and treat it like a tournament. Pretend like there's money on the line. And I would read those notes before I played every rec game. And I found myself bringing a lot more intensity to rec games than anyone else did. And I think that was very helpful for my improvement. Because when I played tennis, I kind of messed around. I didn't take it too seriously. And I, I promised myself coming into pickleball that the last thing I was going to do is waste an opportunity to be great at something. Because in tennis, I felt like I did that. I, I really would have been good at tennis if I took it more seriously, I think. And I got decent. I played at Vanderbilt, but I didn't live up to my full potential in tennis by any means. So in pickleball, I said, I'm not taking any chances. If I don't make it in pickleball, it's not going to be because of a lack of effort. And at this point, I guess you can say I sort of made it. I don't really feel like I've made it. I've got so much room to improve and so much more to do. But if I don't get to the best I can be in pickleball, it's not going to be because of a lack of effort. And I think that's that should be, you know, I, I don't want to tell everybody you've got to try so hard and take it as seriously as I did. But I think it is rewarding in a lot of ways to go out there every time and be the, you know, be bringing the most effort on the court. And it takes some humility because it sometimes you're going to look silly. Right. If you lose and you're trying the hardest, um, it's you know, there's always it's not an easy. It's not a, not a good look. Maybe, you know, some people get self-conscious about that. I think a lot of people don't try as hard as they should because they're afraid of, you know, maybe looking dumb or maybe trying too hard. And then, oh, that guy's such a try hard and he's still lost. You know, that's people are afraid of that stuff. And I know that's how I felt in tennis. I, I was afraid of losing. So I was like, OK, in tennis. And this was when I was young and, and, and frankly, pretty dumb. In tennis, I was of the mindset that I, and this was mostly subconscious, but I was kind of like, well, if I don't try that hard and I lose, it's okay, whatever. I'm, I'm bigger than this. I'm better than this. And in pickleball, 
I never, I, I cut that all out. Um, I decided that I was going to bring the most effort on every court I was on. If I won or I lost, it was fine. I didn't care what anybody else thought about me. If they thought I was trying too hard or if they thought I was annoying for being, you know, hitting every serve so hard and doing everything I possibly could to win every rec game. I kind of just cut that stuff out because at the end of the day, uh, everybody's pickleball journey is about them. This is about you and however you want to go about it is how you want to go about it. And I think if you, if you go out there and give as much effort as possible and really treat every rec game like there's money on the line, I'd be shocked if you didn't get better because I've found that the most intense focused rec games are the ones where I truly feel like I improve. And that's why people say that tournaments make you better because in tournaments you're focused and you really care and you're trying. Well, I treated every rec game like a tournament. So you ask, how did I get better so quickly? I think that's a big part of it. I never really messed around. And every time I drilled, I treated it like a tournament. Um, actually, in my last notes, I had like, every time I'm thinking, I want to feel like in my mind, it's MLP 1919, because I don't want to condition myself to dink when I'm just messing around. I don't really care. And then I've got bad habits. And again, pickleball is a fun sport. I don't want to tell everybody to try as hard as I did or be as competitive and crazy as I did. You don't really have to be writing notes down before every rec game like I was. But that's what I did. And I think that was probably the biggest reason that I improved quickly. Um, just relentless effort and focus and never really taking the point off. So that's all. Um...